0: the author the other side of success a new book coming out i have the book right here in my hands people get this book right here in my hands martin has it behind him as well other side of success money and medium in the golden state where you know golden state is where california where the warriors are <laughs> the, the, the world champs out there man martin gonna to talk to you today happy new year to you how you doing
1: hey happy new year to you boss man uh Thanks uh, so much for having me on. It, uh, it's great. And uh, I really look forward to it and meeting your listeners in Atlanta. Uh, by the way, Curry put up 62 last night, so I think he's he's back.
0: Yes, indeed. Steph, Chef Curry, man, I love that guy, man. Uh, I'll tell you, last time I saw those guys play was December of uh, 18 in Atlanta. They came to Atlanta on, in 18 and played the Hawks that night, and I saw him put on a show, beat the Hawks by about 30 points that night. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I love you against that in Golden State. Now, Martin, uh, I'm talking about the teams back there in Oakland, man. So talk to us about your memories of the Warriors in, in Oakland and Oracle Arena and how that environment was out there with the A's, the Raiders playing at one complex out there in Al- Alameda County. How was that, man?
1: Well, I, I grew up in a little town in rural Wisconsin and then uh, went to school and lived in uh, Chicago and briefly in Detroit and moved out west in 1973. Uh, I just threw everything I had in my car and, you know, left the, the snow and the cold behind. And Oakland at that time uh, was a real... Um, Exciting place! Uh, I mean, sports-wise, you had the A's, you know, who won World Series a couple of times. You had uh, <clears throat> the Raiders, and they won the Super Bowl. And you had the Warriors, and it's uh, uh, and they they won a championship. So there was a lot going on in, a, in the social life in Oakland. Uh, I don't know, boss man, if you know if you've been visited much there. But at that time there were bars and restaurants in an area called Jack London Square. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I kind of hung out. One of them was called Uppies. It was owned by Gene Upshaw. You know, it was the all pro lineman for the, for the Raiders and his brother. So it was a real exciting scene.
0: Most definitely. Now, Martin, you guys come commercial real estate. Tell us about how'd you get into that business and give us kind of this perspective as a developer and trying to get projects off the ground. How was that man?
1: Well I didn't have a normal uh I shouldn't say normal but what would be typical for someone getting in the business today. uh, I didn't start to really late. Uh, I was almost 30. I was in a dead-end job and I just quit one day and Uh, my wife, she just uh, had her baby girl, and I was broke. And so I kind of clawed my way from the bottom. And I was a broker at first, and uh, eventually uh, affiliated with firms at San Francisco, which at that time was sort of the financial center of the West. And Eventually, started doing bigger and bigger deals, selling high-rise office buildings, shopping centers, uh, technology parks. Uh, then I, I kind of got bored with that, and I quit one day, wow. uh, even though I was at the top of my game. <laughs> wow,
0: that takes a lot to walk,
1: walk, walk, walk away had, when you're at the top of your game. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's why you got to read my book, The Other Side of Success to find find out why I made that decision. But uh, uh, I I then became what I would call an operator, an an investor and I uh, I had a business partner who I knew and trusted. So we would go out and buy properties and um, I get on the big deals. You you need to find other people's money because it takes uh, insurance company or pension fund kind of swing these things or a foreign investor. So we would get the money and then we would be the operating partner and we would try to add value and so forth. And then um, that changed too, where I reinvented myself for the third time and became a developer. And uh, we, we had a large project in downtown San Francisco, uh, $400 million, it was a mixed use project had a historic buildings, a shopping mall, residential component. And uh, after that, I stepped out of the game. <laughs> Again, because I wanted just to pursue other things. So that's kind of my short history. It may not be typical of most people who, you know, get in the business today.
0: Now, Martin, what's the difference between commercial and residential real estate? Uh, How is it different? I know, I guess there'll be more so with the homes, it be more so residential and the commercial is more like a mall or a plaza or something like that, or high rise, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's uh, a simple definition would be you have home sales, uh, that's residential, and then you have everything else, and that's commercial. So uh, it it could be a shopping mall, it could be a self-storage facility, it could be a hotel. Even apartments uh, for rent are put in the commercial category versus if you owned a condo, that'd be like owning a single family home and that'd be residential. Uh, The two different mindsets. um, Before I got into real estate, I was thinking that I want to get into residential, but I just... I wasn't emotionally suited for that. Commercial, it's more uh, more of a business. It's more what the numbers say. Uh, and so that, I just felt I was more suited to them.
0: Now, Martin, as we grow from the shopping mall era, like I I know certain towns I go to, I see a lot of malls are kind of desolate. They're kind of empty. And with the boom of Amazon and online shopping, and a lot of these empty malls now. So what's gonna happen with these empty mall spaces where they was big and selling real big, but now with COVID, the online shopping aspect of it now, how do you see the properties of commercial sales when it comes to malls and places like that where you can buy stuff online and I have to go to a physical store anymore?
1: Yeah, the uh, COVID is just accelerating changes that were already taking place for probably 10 15 years uh, ever since amazon amazon has changed the landscape for a lot of industries including writing but it's uh, it's impacted commercial real estate probably as much or more than any other impact it's made it's rendered a lot of malls obsolete and the miracle was really uh, over retailed you know at 20 years ago, there was just too much retail space. And you probably already saw then you may have these like malls and they would have two levels and on the second level would be the tanning salon and things like that. And you couldn't really lease that space but they just kept building more and more. So Amazon put a lot of these uh, malls out of business and COVID has kind of accelerated that. So This is, uh, there's gonna be a lot of reuse. Uh, People are trying to figure out and it really, uh, real estate is location specific. Most definitely. Uh, So it depends where it is. And yeah, yeah, these malls will be converted. Some will be converted to maybe data centers, some to uh, warehouses, if they work physically, uh, some to other uses. And th- that'll be one of the opportunities, I think, in 2021 and the years to come, is how you repurpose these uh, retail malls.
0: It's a mall close to my home here in, in Atlanta, where the Dillard's is gone, the Macy's is gone, the Steers is gone. All the left is a like pennies. Is 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 the foundational store of the mall, and the rest of the mall's kind of like you know, a sweet here, sweet there, sweet here, sweet there, and now they have a, a gaming place in there now on the second level of the mall. So like, I'm seeing it like what you're talking about right in my face, where the, the mall's kind of just fading away. The big foundational stores are gone, but the restaurants still out here. The, the all the other like the T-Mobile cell phone companies, but the actual mall, the financial stores are gone now.
1: Yeah. And- these are these. There's hundreds or thousands of these across the country, and they're struggling. And what happens? Uh, major tenant leaves, like the Macy's or the Pennies, uh, but they may be on a long-term lease. We're still they're still obligated to pay the rent. So the owner of the mall can still pay the mortgage uh, from. The, the holdover rent paid by these large tenants but then uh, he starts losing the small, the small shops and then the small shops move out and you know the gaming things come in or batting cages or whatever and it's just on a downward spiral and when he's no longer able to pay the mortgage uh, he gives it back to the bank and then they try to find a developer and it may be able to be reused or it may be a scraper and you wind up building apartments for the value of the land.
0: Wow. Now, Marty, talk, talk about in your book, getting skin in the game. Talk about skin, skin. I know what you mean by that, about playing sports. I know it's, I know about getting skin in that game in that regard. Talk about that in the real estate world, getting skin, skin, skin in that game.
1: Well, skin in the game is, is a central theme of my book. Uh, not just in commercial real estate, but in all aspects of my life. And all the, it's it's uh, it's the difference in how you respond. Yes, uh, I mean. And you know, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you need to put butts in the seat. You need to have your listeners. You need to wake up every day, have an interesting show. Yes. Or that's it for you. Right? Yeah, they're right. <laughs> it's not like having a real job where you know you take off or still go in and operate at a lower level and still get paid. So it it makes you keenly, keenly aware of and really when a, when it's great, it's really great because you're in your is. own Bosch, you get the you have freedom of choice, but when it's when it's not so great, <laughs> that's when you can really test it. And yes. believe me, everybody gets tested.
0: You know? Oh yes, and especially been a, a long ranger here since I am, you know, this is my baby, you know, <laughs> this is it, you know, I have to make sure, I'm, I'm the booker, I'm the advertiser, I'm the host, is editor, social media, it's all me. So as you said, man, but I love it though. It, it pays off because I know every week I put all the hard work in and the parts I'm talking to you is the easy part, but this is the part off the air that people don't see is the hard
1: part. Uh, and in commercial real estate, the stakes just get bigger and bigger. And uh, when you're involved in these multi-hundred million dollar projects, uh, you have major institutions that put up most of the money, but they still make you put your skin in the game, and you have the time, and and they take a long time, and you can work ten years, and then not have it pay out. So it's it's the but it, it was uh, it was more than the money. It was for me the juice. It's that adrenaline rush that I got from closing these big deals and negotiating with business titans. You know, people's names you see in the paper. And winning and then getting the crap kicked out of me on the next deal. So,
0: oh, yes, oh, yes. Now, Martin, this is a, a key <laughs> subject here gentrification. And you use a planner for a city, Atlanta, as you probably know most of these cities are, they try to gentrify certain areas of the city, and being a planner. How do you combat this as a planner, and how you think about the citizens who are getting moved out for the, the new project or the new thing coming to town or this side of the neighborhood? Because you know people are hurt by that. You know, I talk all the time when we see, see that public or Starbucks, somebody paid a price for that and by moving out of his neighborhood for you. And if you know, for me coming from an area that's been justified right now, I see when I when I go back to my to my neighborhood, I'm like, wow, how it's changing changing up over the years.
1: Yeah. And- this is such a, such an important topic uh, and it, it changes with time and one's kind of perspective and you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, the Bay Area in the years that I've lived there, uh, the years before and after the millennium was a time of really major physical, financial, social population change. When I moved to Oakland, uh, the black population had grown and in another few years would exceed the white population. But there was also uh, Vietnamese coming in after the war. Uh, You had Chinese communities, Chinatown and Oakland. Uh, You're starting to see increased uh, immigration from Mexico, legal and illegal. So it's this just kind of huge churning melting pot. And um, then uh, when technology uh, in Silicon Valley became the driver of of the economy in the Bay Area, uh, that's when gentrification really started to happen. And uh, the cost of living, the cost of housing shot through the roof. And that's when, in Oakland, uh, the black population started to decrease. People started moving back to the south, to Texas, just uh, because they couldn't make a go of it. And in San Francisco, things just got, and still ridiculously expensive. So our major project called City Place, it was right on the edge of the tenderloin, and it was... Uh, a, rede- a redevelopment project meant to revitalize the area. The Tenderloin was kind of where all, all the bad things happen. And uh, it took us, we tried to do it, you know, sensitive to the needs of the local residents. We financially assisted our tenants. A lot of them were like uh, 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 hospital sponsored, and socially sponsored uh, businesses to help the homeless. Uh, we don't, uh, only uh, scraped dilapidated structures already that didn't have much use and restored historic structures. So we tried to do it in a sensitive way, but it's, it's the way life works. The only thing certain is change. And in the Bay Area, it was like, Really, really a lot of change.
0: Oh, yeah. And when, when the Falcons uh, rebuilt Mercedes Benz Stadium, tore down the Georgia Dome. The area from Vine City is where I, I, I pretty much came up from over, there, from over there. It's like, you know, you can see where they're changing things around. And, you know, that whole English Avenue area where Clark Atlanta is, Spelman, Morehouse. You just see it happening. I'm like, yep. And people are getting kind of forced out. And also, Mark, talk about this, how sometimes you use the eminent domain from a city can just, you know, use that to get the land from, from people as well. You take this offer, we'll we use eminent domain and take the land anyway for our use.
1: Yeah, the the laws have changed on that over the years. Uh, you know, compared back to you know fifty, hundred years ago, or like New York when they when Robert Moses—I don't know if you've heard the name—but he heard was the name. kind of the director of developer, and they they would just take out whole neighborhoods to build a freeway, like the through the Bronx, uh, and then. Uh, the rules now, it's harder to, uh, the uses that you can make of eminent domain. So I, I don't think you see as much going forward, just these wholesale removals of neighborhoods as you did in the past. Uh, but it's still, it's a tricky issue. You know, you need the new business to revitalize an area, but then at what expense? And it's, it's always, a, it's always a debate.
0: Most definitely. Now, Martin, um, talk about the immigrant experience. You came can't, from you can't, you can't, your parents are from the Ukraine. Uh, you went back there, to kind of find out your roots, and you met your sister before she passed away. Talk about the immigrant experience, and you know, coming up, coming up, moving to a new country here, West Coast, to California. So, to kind of lay out how that was, man, being an immigrant in the United States, man, and how you were treated differently, and how 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 you see the U.S. from your perspective of being an immigrant coming over here now.
1: Yeah, it really, really shaped my experience, probably as much as anything. Uh, My parents uh, were born and lived in Ukraine uh, under the regimes of Stalin and then Hitler and then Stalin again. Wow. So so this was as bad as it could be. Uh, It was the scene of the greatest mass killing of civilians probably in human history, the area between uh, Moscow and Berlin, you know, when Stalin and Hitler were in power. So they escaped with their lives. Uh, They saw their friends, family members killed, sent off to camps. Uh, And it took, And then after the war, it took them four years because the quotas were restricted and and they were lucky that they finally found a sponsor and they increased the quotas that year and were able to, to immigrate here so they they were resettled in a small town in rural wisconsin cuz the policy at that time was to uh, resettle in kind of in the hinterland and not concentrate in the populations you know, like in New York or Toronto, where there was like Ukrainian ghettos like there were, you know, for other ethnic groups. So the, the best way to put it is they were taken advantage of when they first got here. Uh, they worked kind of for free. Uh, people didn't know what a Ukrainian was. This was the McCarthy era. Uh, so we are suspected of having communist sympathies uh, despite all of this. For them, it was heaven. That's the best way I can put it, relative to where they came from. Oh yes, uh, and and that's what like generations today they just don't understand <laughs> what it, what it was like and the mindset that people have. So uh, they they valued, and the other thing is they would live through their children uh, in terms of if. Trying to give for the kids what they didn't have, you know, the best possible education and and so forth. So, uh, believe me, I appreciated from the time I was little to the present day what what I have and how lucky I am. Uh, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> oh, oh no, you're good, man. That's, no. that's my mindset.
0: Hey, no, man. Hey, what you're saying is so true because you know, for me, I have the same kind of not from as an immigrant, but I've, I came up from a rough start to get where I am today. So to be where I am today, entrepreneur, with my own radio show, being able to talk to you today, oh, uh, man, you know, knowing where I started and where I, I had to go to to get here, man, it's rewarding. So I feel your sentiment, man, the way, hey, every day is a great, a great day for people like you and I. To, to
1: wake up on top of the grass, boss man. That's
0: yes. <laughs> yes. As, as they say, it's better to be seen and not viewed. That's what they always say. It's better to be
1: seen <laughs> and not
0: viewed. So I, that's, the, that's the line I always been told my whole life. So that's why I go with. <laughs> as long as you see me, we're good. I don't want you to be viewing me right now, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Now, enough now, now you, you, you've you dated interracially your whole life, man. So tell us about that, because, you know, in the South here, that's still kind of uh, frowned upon in some parts of the South. Now, in Atlanta is okay, but, you know, parts of the South down here in, in the South, South of the United States, that's kind of an issue for some people still. So how is it for you dating racially and learning a d- different culture from your own and m- intermingling and mixing that way? Because I fuck, like it's a great thing, man, that you had experience.
1: Well, uh, growing up in this little town, there, there weren't any black folk, or really, it was all kind of Northern European immigrants. Uh, so when I moved to Chicago in 1968, uh, fresh out of high school, and that's when I sold uh, fuller brush products door to door, there was a lot going on. There was uh, the Martin Luther King Jr., it was assassinated like several months earlier. So the whole West Side was like burned out. I mean, there were, the, the rise of like 20, 30 people killed and probably 2,000 homes and businesses destroyed. It was, and then there was the Democratic National Convention in a couple of months. So it was kind of chaos. And uh, and while I went to school, school there, I did some community-based work uh, with uh, the, the Disciples Street Gang on the West Side. And they're not like the gangs today. Uh, they and the Blackstone Rangers on the South Side, they'd have 10, 15,000 members. <laughs> uh, so it was, so I, that was my introduction to urban living. And then I moved to Oakland in 73 and uh, still didn't date interracially. I had a girlfriend. Who, who I was going with, who moved out with me later from Wisconsin and, uh, and then that, that relationship ended. So it wasn't until 1977, 76, 77 uh, that I met my first wife. She was a Choctaw Indian, 100% Native American. And we met at a bar in Jack London Square. Wow. And kind of hit it off, and uh, and got married a year later, and so that was my first interracial dating experience. But again, the skin in the game. Uh, I she had two sweet children from a prior marriage, so and she was pregnant with her daughter, so there was all these responsibilities now. (laughs) And I had, you know, family to support. And at that time I was having financial issues. I was in a dead end job. And and that's kind of when I made a decision. I had to change my life. Uh, Subsequent to that, uh, we divorced in the mid 80s. And then I dated... And again, if you can picture Oakland now and, and the clubs, it was like just, it was a really great scene. And most, most my friends socially at that time were either the extended family from my marriage to Wanda or uh, people I had met. And eventually I married Anita, who was a black woman. She grew up in the rural South, uh, on the outskirts of Mobile. And that relationship, that uh, she, she was a charismatic woman on top of that. And none of, none of the women I married were shrinking violets. <laughs> I mean, if you, you could picture you know, a confident woman with Southern values, mm-hmm. uh, she calls it as it is, yeah, so. And then uh, that marriage ended with her passing. And then my third and uh, final marriage uh, was to Virginia. And she was also, uh, grew up in the rural South in uh, the Macomb area near Jackson, Mississippi. And again, was made herself and succeeded. And um, it's, it's, it's been a great experience. It's been a great experience.
0: And Martin, how was it trying to learn about the difference between the races, between like a full, full-fledged Native American versus a Black woman, and you've been Ukrainian from European descent? So how was it trying to mend you all's backgrounds together, learn, learn about one, another, one another's backgrounds?
1: Well, that's that's the key feature. <laughs> when you're in an interracial relationship, uh, it's not like... It, it, sub-stereotypical views that one race is predominates or superior to the other. Uh, we had our life experiences and we learned about in detail and day to day, uh, what those experiences were and how you deal with people and treat people. And kind of the, the operating philosophy Uh, through the years that I had was no matter what race the person is. And this isn't just in love, but in business, I dealt with, you know, a lot of foreign investors. I dealt with Chinese and Japanese and, you know, the height of their investment in the 80s and Israelis and, Russians. (laughs) And my philosophy was always to look the other person in the eye. Uh, at eye level, kind of, uh, and feel neither superior nor inferior. And that bo- it, that goes both ways. And so I would engage. And if the, that person felt the same way, then we would have a, a relationship. And if they didn't, then we, we just move on. And so it's it's very... It's not easy. And in the book, I used uh, kind of a comparison, uh, particularly in the kind of day and age we're living in now, uh, with, with all the stuff on social media and just the, the constant pounding. Um, to, to deal adroitly, it's like a Zen monk disarming a samurai. Uh, okay. You don't do it with force or with you know, negativity back or yelling—you do it with being adroit right and understanding the situation, and not being afraid, but treating the person as a person. I know it sounds corny, but that's—that's that's really the only way it works.
0: That's no, not corny at all, because I, I try to everybody the same. It comes on my show, to respect. I don't try to, I try to build a relationship with you through, through, through the radio here and with my listeners here. So I want people to see you for who you are. And I don't judge people. I, I, I'll talk to anybody in the world, you know. As long as they, 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 they respect me, I respect you back. You know, as long as you don't get disrespectful, we're good. Now, I've only had two bad interviews in my career. Which is good for being on the air radio for over eight years. Then <laughs> the two I had that were bad were bad, but <laughs> for two eight years, man, it's pretty good. So people, people to be about you. Anybody has a story, I want to share with the listeners, of the audience here in Atlanta, so they can hear about it and grow from it. I want to help people grow with my radio show, educate them, entertain them, and empower them with new content. That's what I want to do here in the show. And I think this great that you say that, Martin, because treat people with people as people. That's a great thing to take away from this interview, like right? treat people as people because we all bleed the same blood. We are all as people, you know, let's <laughs> let's treat each other as such.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's it, you know what i in Ukraine or I mean in any part of the world, it's the same. You people, you have people with differences Sometimes it's visually apparent, like in skin color. Other times it could be just two ethnic groups that look alike, uh, but there's always differences and you have to deal with the differences and it's how you respond. And so,
0: Most definitely. Now Mari, talk about this man. Uh, you grew up and been a Catholic, you left the church you came back to the Catholic church. So talk about that journey of religion, spirituality, going going from going and being brought up into it to leaving it and coming back to it. And what, and what brought you back to, to the Catholic church there?
1: Well, I, I grew up uh, as Roman Catholic. Uh, in, again, in this little town, I went to Catholic grade school. And then to, I went to a Jesuit high school. And that was actually one of the big, uh, Experiences of my life. I, I learned far more in high school than I ever did in college or later from an academic standpoint. The, the Jesuits are the branch of Catholic religion that are kind of more the intellectual, um, uh, the deep thinkers. So, uh, but then when when I went to college, it's probably like for a lot of people, you just uh, lose your you lose your way? You stop practicing. And uh, America just became increasingly secular, I think, after the 60s uh, to the present day. Uh, so it wasn't until I met my second wife, Anita, who was religious. Uh, she read the Bible every night. Uh, she wasn't into the ritual. You know, her uh, mother was Pentecostal, and she just thought there was, you know, it was like lasted all day and a lot of yelling and testifying. And but she adopted her own her own formula. She read the Bible. She did these elaborate commentaries. She wrote in the margins, and uh, most important, she practiced what she preached, and she led by example. So I admired her. A lot, and kind of gradually started getting back to my religion, and then many years later, I went to a a retreat. It was a Jesuit retreat, and after that, that's when I started practicing again. So, that was a journey.
0: Now, Martin, and I also read where you know, losing your second wife, you know, and learning how to cope with. Loss and grief. I know I've had I've lost people close to me and having to deal with that. So, how did you cope losing someone who was that meant so much to you and trying to overcome and keep pushing forward after losing somebody that meant so much? Brought you back to religion and helped you in so many ways.
1: Well, there's there's a saying that if if life doesn't get your attention, death will. And I think death. Uh, it's it's such a huge thing, and it depends so much on the nature of the relationship, and the the age and other factors of the person that dies. So this was my not only my wife but my my spiritual mentor, and it was and she just she it wasn't a long illness. She literally dropped dead. One night, so there was no last words. There was no saying goodbyes. There was nothing, and uh, that it just affected me griefly. I considered suicide for a while, and and tried to find how to cope with it. You know, I went and saw a psychologist. I uh, kind of that didn't work, and then I started just doing my own research. Uh, and tried different things, but the the thing that made the biggest difference was uh, my interaction with a psychic medium uh, whose uh, name is Mary Jo. And I know a good segment of your listeners now are going to start rolling their eyes. <laughs> and I'm not here to tell people, you know, what they should believe and not believe uh, because I was a skeptic for a long time. Uh, but... Right here and I met this woman, and she she was a psychic medium. And she looked normal; she was like a suburban housewife and good Christian woman. She just had some skills, and uh, I got to know her over the years, both as advisor and friend. And how how it's done is a mystery, uh, but. there's a tiny percentage of people who advertise themselves as psychics. Most don't have the skills or it's just kind of a fraudulent deal, but there's a tiny percentage who are extremely skilled and can provide valuable information through unexplainable means. And, you know, a little bit, I'll be, by now, I try to experience life directly and not Mm -hmm. take other people's word for it and put skin in the game. And so when Anita passed, um, I connected uh, with with Mary Jo, and she just told me it was too early to talk, and I had to get my, you know, stuff together, and get my life together, and then, you know, call her back. So she wasn't like pressing me. Uh, that's the way she was. She. In fact, discouraged me from talking to her other than a couple of times a year, so it wouldn't be like a crutch. And eventually, she was able to connect me with Anita, uh, and our relationship survived after a physical death. And there was nothing bigger in my life.
0: Now, last one I got for you before we have you talk about your book one more time here. Um, You lived in SoCal and NorCal. Which part of state did you enjoy the most, and why, man? Because I've been to both parts of the state. Of you know, I've been to South Carolina, North Cal, <laughs> multiple times, man. I like it out there. Uh, it's not humid as it is here in Georgia. It's very humid here in Georgia. The air is real nice out there. It's not too hot. Not too cold. So, talk about living in North Carolina and in man. Which one you you like the best out in, in in the Golden State out there? Well, there's
1: no perfect place, boss man. is is each, every place has its pluses and minuses. Uh, I loved LA, I loved the warm weather and the beaches, kind of the vibe. uh, And there was a lot of business to be had. But at the same time, uh, as my wife Anita pointed out, it's a land of illusion and delusion. And it feels, at times just like a big Hollywood movie set and there's that there's that fake aspect that it, it just it's it's part of part of that scene or at least that was for us. Uh, San Francisco on the other hand uh, it's cold and foggy but it was the financial center of the west coast and then Silicon Valley when the the tech industry grew it grew into San Francisco. So it was a great place to go and make money and to visit, but I lived there for a couple of years. And again, the vibe was just off for me. It, uh, it's not a great place to raise kids. And at that time, my daughter was like at a really formative age. She was like six, seven, right after our divorce. And uh, it has, it had then, and probably still has the lowest percentage of households with children of any large city. So I just didn't like the vibe. And so I've always, when I lived in the Bay Area, would live in the East Bay and Oakland or lived in Piedmont, Berkeley. Uh, just the folks were a little, it, it had a working class reputation. And the folks just seem to be a little bit sane. And, so. Most definitely. But again, it's pluses and minuses.
0: Most definitely. Now, Martin, if I listen here, tell them how they can get your book that I have in my hand right here and right behind you as well. How can they, how can they get your book? And give them that one last pitch to go out here and buy this book, man, and learn more about <laughs> of success, man. I want them to the buy this book. Bob Martin's book, but I'll let them tell you a little bit more about it for you so you can go out and get it out of the center of your ears.
1: Yeah, so the book is called The Other Side of Success, and the subtitle is Money and Meaning in the Golden State. And as you could probably tell by now, it's not just a business bio, but it's a memoir uh, that gets pretty raw and personal and tries to be as real as you can. So it's available for sale online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other major booksellers. Uh, you can check it out a little bit more on my website, com or on social media. And uh, for your listeners only, boss, man, I give an ironclad guarantee that if they buy it and don't finish it and don't like it, I'll give them their money back. That's a special deal today only. Got
0: you, I got hey, you got it from Martin. You got a special deal, Boston listeners. You got it from him. But I'm gonna tell you, I read the book, I enjoyed it. You will enjoy it as well, cause a lot here to learn from a lot of the nuggets for you. Get the nuggets, get the breadcrumbs, and learn from this book and you put apply them in your life as well, people. Martin, thank you for your time. This is fun to do this, man. I know it's the first time doing it, but I'm glad you did it, man. I told you it'll be painless. I told you, painless, it'll be fun, man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much, boss. it's I uh, really enjoyed it, it was great. And uh, you know, maybe next time you really put me on the hot seat.
0: Oh, no, hey, I'm about, I'm about love and positivity, Mark. That's not me. Hey, other shows for that, it's not this show, man. We do do that. We want you to be happy and having a good time smiling, man. We're not here, we're not. I got gotcha your show. <laughs>
1: It's okay
0: Martin, thank you, man. hey have a happy new year to you and talk to you real soon be safe now same to you All right, now. see ya bye, bye now.